0: The pandemic has opened nurses' eyes to seek out new careers in nursing.
1: We always get more questions about what other opportunities there are in nursing other than working at the bedside.
0: Both of us have our master's degrees and it has afforded us career advancement, flexibility of schedules, and work-life balance. Going back to school is always an option.
1: And Samuel
0: Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. They're consistently ranked top in the U.S. for diversity and highest-paid graduates. In order to help
1: nurses advance their education during these crazy times, they are offering over a dozen different types of easily obtainable scholarships, starting at $10,000 for any nurse who enrolls in the spring 2022 semester in either their online MSN FMP
0: or DNP FMP programs. So visit them at smumsn.com. Again, that is smumsn.com. Is this thing still on?
1: I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking?
0: Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. My name is Amy. And my name is Sarah. And we are your podcast hosts.
1: If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or any other podcast listening platform, don't forget to subscribe so you can get updates to when we have our latest episodes. Also, don't forget to rate and review
0: us. And if you like what you're hearing and you love our advocacy work, don't forget to go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the donate button. As little
1: as $1 or $2 a month for a total of $12 a year will help us with our monthly podcast costs such as website hosting, our hosting platform,
0: audio equipment, and the time and energy it takes us to put out good quality episodes. We thank you and we appreciate you. Hi, and welcome, everybody. We are super excited to speak to the guest that we have today. I mean, I'm not going to belabor the point. I'm going to get Sarah to jump in and introduce our guest, please.
1: Okay. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Lorna Kendrick. She holds a bachelor's degree in nursing from Loma Linda University, a master's degree in child adolescent psychiatric mental health nursing from Georgia State University, and a doctorate in nursing with a focus in nursing research from the University of California. She worked for years in a neurosurgical ICU as an advanced practice child adolescent psychiatric mental health clinical nurse specialist. She also maintained a private practice for the past 25 years in Southern California, providing individual family group, and play therapy to child and adolescent clients and their families. Dr. Kendrick has conducted research with young African-American men focusing on untreated depression as a primary risk factor for early-onset cardiovascular disease. Her research interests connecting mental health with disease prevention and physical wellness have taken her to Europe, Argentina, Nigeria, and beyond. She is currently the School of Nursing Dean of Samuel Merritt University in California. Welcome, Lorna. We're so glad to have you here today.
2: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Always happy to talk about nursing.
1: So you have quite the background in nursing. Just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background, some of your research, and why you chose child-adolescent mental health.
2: Of course. You know, I started off, um, well, I'll give you a little bit of history about being a little kid and why I chose to do what I'm doing. As a little girl, I always wanted to be just like Madame Curie. I wanted to be a scientist. And I actually have a granddaughter that also wants to be a scientist. So I always knew that doctoral work, PhD work, research was an area that I wanted to go into. Didn't know at the time that it would be nursing, but it ended up being nursing. And so I decided, as well, as an undergraduate nursing student and graduating, I went into neurointensive care and I worked a lot of critical care, neurointensive care. That was my area of focus for a long time. And I was chosen to become a faculty and do clinical um, teaching only for nursing students. And my school at Loma Linda, knew that I wanted to go into education and nursing higher education and nursing and so they knew that by bringing me on as a clinical instructor it would force my hand and keep me in school and it did and so when I decided I wanted to do mental health it's an ironic story i said i want to do you know i love the emotional and the um and and some of you know some of the challenges that our patients go through with some of their, you know, just their mental wellness. And when we're at the bedside, we see those things. And I felt like I needed more information to be able to be a great nurse at the bedside, working not only with the physical health, but the mental well-being. And so I decided to apply. And at the time I applied to Georgia State, it was Georgia State or Vanderbilt, both had the programs. Georgia State had an an accelerated program summer to summer. And so that's why I chose that route. And I went to one of my faculty and I said, I don't know which one to choose. I'm not a mental health professional. Should I do adult or should I do child adolescent? And she counseled me so well and said, there are so many people focused on adults. You might be better off focusing on children and adolescents. So Mm -hmm. that's how that decision happened. And that's probably one of the best decisions I ever made because the one thing that I love about working with children and adolescents, they say when you work with them, wow, I can be better. What do I need to do? And oftentimes adults will say, well, I've been this way my whole life. Why are you trying to change me? Right. <laughs> right, right. Well, there was more hope with children and adolescents. And I know that if you, if you catch a child early, you can change the trajectory of their life. And so when we think about social determinants of health, starting with children, we can really impact the way, you know, the way we treat our clients. And so that's how I got into that area and then with my research, I, um, as, as I mentioned, I was a bedside nurse and, and I went into mental health as an advanced practice, so I was never what they would consider in nursing a psychiatric nurse where I worked in a, on a unit with patients, so I didn't have that experience. But I did, I was a therapist nurse, right? So what caused me to look at my research and the direction I went into my research was, as I w- you know, I was saying that one of the students ahead of me in the doctoral program at UCLA was the nurse manager over child adolescent units. She found out that I was a child adolescent specialist and asked if I would begin to do some work. On her unit and so i thought this was a wonderful opportunity for me to get some inpatient experience since i was a nurse therapist and had not worked in the inpatient area so i did that to see you know to kind of just discover some of the challenges between a patient being inpatient and then coming out to me for therapy and it was a wonderful experience but what i noticed was a lot of the patients of color were being medicated probably a little bit more than the the other patients. And sometimes there was this fear of someone losing control and and it was really fear and not based on science. And so it made me want to look at people of color when it comes to um, mental health. And I started talking to my my chair and the other people on my committee, and they knew I was more interested in working with men, and it was their encouragement to just look at men. And so I started um, uh, writing and doing my research with the perceptions of depression among young African-American men who were more affluent, not just the inner city. And that's where it all started. And one of the things that was exciting for us at the time was we were the first, when I published that first article, we were the first to ever say, and this, remember, now I did an ethnographic study, so it was all the participants' thoughts and ideas. It wasn't based on questions that I went in with. It really was to capture and to, what, cap, what captivated them, what was important to them, and so we were the first to ever publish that for those young men, they felt that depression was a fact of life if you grew up in America and you were someone of color because you had to fight against so many social um, challenges. And so that was interesting. But then the other thing that came out and we're still struggling with it today. Now, mind you, I started my doctoral program in 1995. And what I discovered through my research was we, you would think that it might be family challenges and, and problems with family relationships. The one thing that rose to the top every single time with every group of participants I worked with was police stops caused Mm -hmm. more depression and sadness and the inability to recover. And that, can you imagine, 1995 and here we are today, similar, same thing going on. But those young men were resilient and they felt, that others could never have tolerated and gone through the things that they went through and still were able to be successful. And so I'm really proud of that. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is because I do participatory research methods, my participants on a couple of my articles were also co-authors. So that's the kind of research I do. It really is about the community. It really is about changing and improving the social determinants of health in particular, when it comes to depression. One of the other th- studies I, I was a, a part of and, and kind of designed was looking at the fact that if left untreated, depression leads to early onset cardiovascular disease. So, right. or, you know, hypertension, changes in blood vessels, all sorts of things. And so you wonder why men of color um, health even though they may change diet, change lifestyle, by the time they reach their 70s, late 60s, 70s, they look as though they never changed the diet from kind of that inner city, maybe more lower socioeconomic status, kind of lifestyle. And so it's because of the stress. It's because of the stress. So that's a kind of a, kind of a quick and dirty overview of some of the things that um, led me to this point in my career.
0: That is some amazing, amazing work. And I mean, I think about even just the time frame in which you had been doing your research around 1995. And if if my mind is is correct, I think just around, I think it was like 1991, the, the Rodney King beating That's occurred. Right. And I think all around, like I could imagine, I only could imagine the fear that Black oh, yes. men were, were faced with during that time. And I mean, your research speaks to it. Th- like this yeah. is some really amazing work i wonder if other people are using this and i and and i know that you know we see the brutality we see the harm that is caused on a day-to-day basis whether it's through carding or these various different policies and how could we not attribute that to poorer health outcomes for black males or black individuals like i mean i think this is that is such groundbreaking work and now i feel like i need to read your paper (laughs) so (laughs) I will share it with you. <laughs> I would Please do share it with us and we'll definitely share it with our listeners as well.
2: And just something to add, you know, a few years back, um, quite a few years back now, I was invited to a research uh, symposium at one of the other universities. And I was shocked to find out that several of their doctoral students were replicating my study. So a lot, I think that it's out there. And when I look at how many times others have quoted or, or referred to the article, um, I think it's like maybe 80 times now. So I, I think it's getting out there. And one of the things that I think is pretty unique Because I did ethnography, when I first started trying to recruit, I'd ask men if they wanted to talk to me. And they said, if you want to talk about prostate cancer, we'll talk to you. We don't want to talk about (laughs) depression, right? Right, right, right. interested in (laughs) prostate cancer. But the exciting thing was my younger son at the time was, was in, I think, freshman year of college or maybe last year of high school. And he said, you need someone that looks like them to talk to them about joining your study. You should let me do it. I said, I have to go back to the IRB and make sure that we can do that. I don't want to do anything that gets in trouble. And and the the IRB approved it, and he really helped. When he was in college, he really helped to recruit. We did a um, kind of a snowball method, and one guy would tell another guy, and he helped to recruit a lot of the first few participants, and then they helped recruit others. And so he really um, gave voice to it as well. And Another ironic feature, I have three children, two sons and a daughter, but my older son, African-American young man, but he's a police officer, law enforcement.
0: Mm. Right? Wow.
2: And he does it because he wants to make a difference and change the dynamics and change the culture. So right. the research has, has helped in many ways. And a friend and colleagues that I know, a couple of pastors, have used this, this study and the article to generate conversations among uh, some of their um, you know, their members. So it's out there. And um, you know, I was thinking, I wish we could republish it again in light of what's happened most recently.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's always good to hear that—that that knowledge to translation because you know we yeah. always say that it takes like thirteen years for you know you do the hard research, and yeah. they only start implementing the practices like thirteen years later. Right. And you know what? I think for you, that's definitely a win that you're—they're using that research and they're saying how can we make a difference? And that's right. Yeah, I mean, I—I I, how could we not think that racism can cause harm? Like we we right. know this, that's and it's—I'm glad that we have even just preliminary, just starting yeah. that people are starting to take this work and this research seriously. So again, thank you even for that. And we'll definitely share that with our with our right. listeners. Thank you. As well. um, so I'm going to just jump into another topic that I saw here, I noticed that you also maintained a private practice for mm-hmm. the past 25 years. Is there anything that you don't do? Could you tell us a little bit about your private practice?
2: Well, since I've been dean, I have not been able to see patients. I just don't have the time. But um, I'd imagine, right? (laughs) But because I was teaching, and you think about nursing education, when you're in nursing education, you really need to stay current. And so that was my way of staying current. It also allowed me to work with those graduate students who might have been in a psych NP program to give them some opportunities to have patients that they could work with. My private practice um, for a number of years was just referrals right I had I had pastors I had friends I had students I had people who were always referring people's people in the community to see me because they thought that they needed a therapist that understood but also looked like them could understand the cultural nuances um, was kind of innovative in some of the interventions that we would try and so that really allowed me I mean word of mouth was enough I mean I you know I sometimes I've had to turn people down and say I just don't have time to do it but I did it and and more recently probably since I've been in leadership a lot of what I've done has been pro bono just because I know the need is there and and sometimes if if someone has to pay it's a big deterrent from them going into therapy. And so I already, I have a job that pays me well. So if I can do some work to support someone that might not otherwise see a therapist, then I would do that. So that's what I've done to maintain my own currency, as well as make a difference in the community. One of the things that I'm really proud of when it comes to that is sometimes as a faculty, I would have students come to me because they were struggling with something. And I'll never forget when one of our uh, Latinx students came to me and he said, Dr. Kendrick, I read your article. And it really really resonates with my experience and my friends' experiences. And we started doing a, a group together in the evening to help support those students. And so the private practice has been just kind of part of the framework of what I do as a clinician and as an academic.
1: That's amazing. I think that's really inspiring that you want to give back to the community. And I hear what you're saying about racism. Like what I, I feel is that racism is a public health emergency. And you it gave is. a perfect example of how that is, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't think everybody is aware that untreated depression can lead to heart disease. Right. So it's, it's an indirect effect of how Black men and Black people in general are being treated in society. And this leads to all kinds of physical and mental manifestations.
2: That's right. That's so true. That's so true. And you think about just a a 10 point change in the systolic blood pressure is a huge change, but stress can do that and it can become the normal blood pressure. And then it leads to all sorts of other illnesses, you know, um, over time. And so if we can help prevent that, look at what we can do with the social determinants of health.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a whole aspect of health equity, right? And exactly. In terms of looking at who's disproportionately affected by these different things and yeah. and using that research evidence and, and saying, hey, how could we do things differently for, for this ethnic group? Or how can right. we improve their healthcare outcomes? And I mean, I I really hope, because we, we do have a lot of students that listen, this is how you translate knowledge into That's practice. Right. You take the information and you say, this is what we found. Mm-hmm. This is how we move health equity one patient at a time. I'm, I'm like, I'm super stoked to read your yes. information.
2: Now, let me, I would love to add this piece because you're mm-hmm. right. Talk, you talked about how long it can take to get that data out to the public. And I think when you do participatory action research and you're in the community, you owe that community the A report. Right. And so that gets it out to the community sooner than waiting for an article to be published. Right. So that's what I think was the difference for us. The community was so much a part of the planning, the decisions, the, the, you know, the recruitment and just all of that. So they knew what was going on. So when I reported out, they started to spread the word. And so that yeah. to me, that's why I love participatory action research, because it really gets to the heart. It gets to the people that need to know about it sooner than waiting for publications and oh other, gosh.
0: You know, mm-hmm. other yeah.
2: ways that we t- typically disseminate information.
0: So... We're we're gonna switch gears a little bit, but I I think it's actually all still really related when we when we think about some of the work that you've been doing and you know, that you've been kind of studying and following children in terms of their mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, the pandemic, (laughs) you probably know where I'm going, Mm -hmm. has been really difficult and has been really difficult on children. Mm -hmm. And I guess the simplified question is are kids Going to be okay. Are kids okay currently? And is there something that we can do as nurse clinicians, as nurse scientists, as you know, nurses working on the front lines? Like, what can we do? What should we do? Is this a problem?
2: Working with children, I would say this, and and with anyone, I think, but in particular with children, when we're honest with them. And we don't put fear in them, but we explain things in an objective way. The children are more resilient than anyone can imagine. They have that little bit of resilience that just gets them over so many things. They can get past things that adults struggle with, right? And so when we're honest, when we're objective, when we give them an answer, they do better. What I've discovered in my research, not just my research, but in practice, is when a parent hide something from a child. Those are the children that suffer. Those are the children that make up the stories, that fill in the gaps of the knowledge that they weren't given. And Mm -hmm, then it's mm -hmm. worse. The fear just grows and grows until it becomes a monster for them, right? And then they end up seeing me. But when parents say, you know, I can give I can give you an example. I have four granddaughters and one Mm -hmm. in particular, the one who wants to be like grandma and wants to be a scientist, she said, Kids can get their shots now. I'm the first in line for my coach. (laughs) I want mine, right? Because she knows. She's always using her hand sanitizer because she knows. But think about children who may not have that information. They kind of overhear the news that their parents are listening to, and they fill in those gaps, but they don't have the knowledge to fill in the gap correctly. So they're filled with misinformation, Mm -hmm. misinformation. And that's where they struggle over time. So that's what I tell all parents. Let them know what's going on. Let them know that this is what we're going to do to protect them and keep them safe. But yes, this is what's happening. So these are the things you have to also do to help me keep you safe. Those kinds of conversations go a long way. And now I can even say when I think about my role as a dean and the students that we have, We, you know, there were so many unknowns, but what we said to students, we would say, we don't know right now, but at this point, this is the best way we can keep you safe. These are the things that are happening right now. And this is what we will do as a college of nursing to make sure that you are safe. If we're sending you to clinical, this is what we're doing. If we're sending you out in the community, this is what we're going to do. This is what I need you to do. And that kind of information, um, I think really made a difference for our students even.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally appreciate how neuroplastic the child's brain can be. That's I right. I remember thinking that there's no way kids are going to wear masks all day for school. No way. And now my kids won't even go out without putting a mask on. It's like their security I blanket. I also agree with the um, honesty. I think that's the best policy. Even yes. talking about difficult things like death, I just I think it's best to be honest and give them yes. the correct information. And I think just in terms of the pandemic, we've heard from a lot of our listeners they are struggling with nursing school and the whole virtual aspect yeah. of it. Just wondered if you could touch a bit on that and what your plans are for the year moving ahead.
2: You know you know what I think? Um, um, when a couple of our faculty use the, the term secret sauce, and I'm stealing it from them because I love it. <laughs> <but> I, think, <laughs> I think the secret sauce at Samuel Merritt College of Nursing is the fact that our faculty and our, our college as a whole tends to use the Caritas model. So they use a lot of deep breathing and uh, um, centering moments before classes start. And, and you know, sometimes you may not be one to want to do all of that, but during COVID, even the naysayers are like, okay, when are we going to do our breathing before we start the- 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 when the- the- when the- are we going to do our breathing and our centering before we move on, right? And I think that that little secret sauce has really helped to make a difference. Not to say that our students haven't struggled, but but our students I think have the resources and the support to be successful in the midst of that. For, for example, one of the things that I'm most proud of about Samuel Merritt is there's this statement that is said we, nothing will prevent our students from not being able to be successful even if it means we have to find a donor to, to to donate money for a hotel so that they're not driving back and forth for hours because the clinical site is so far away or That's someone someone who said that you know their computer we, we we're in the bay area and we know that people It's kind of windows are broken and you can't leave anything on your, on your seats. And so sometimes we've had to replace laptops or sometimes pay for daycare for a parent to get to clinical. That is the secret sauce about Samuel Merritt that makes me love being there. Others try to support, but I see it in everyday actions that occur. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, our students struggle, but our students know that it's a safe place to say I'm struggling because we can offer assistance. We, since I've been there, we've actually um, developed an ethics team where several of us meet and sometimes we have to meet with students and where students are getting the word out there they know that we're there to support them. We had a student once that was so worried um, that 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 they would become homeless in a couple of months, because they hadn't been able to t- pay their rent. And wow. our our VP of Student Affairs was on the call with us and said, how much do you, you know, what's your rent? What How much are you behind? And took care of that student. We found work study for that student. I mean, these are the kinds of things that have been going on through COVID that just make me even more proud to be a part of Samuel Merritt. So it's not just initiatives that you hear about, but it's true action that happens every single day that we're there.
0: Amazing. That sounds like a truly amazing school to go to because I could tell you, like, I mean, we both had, I'd say, Sarah, that we both had a good experiences in our nursing undergraduate, mm-hmm. but nothing like how you described, yes. <laughs> like nothing yes. like how, sorry, that acronym that you used, just for our listeners. What was the acronym? The CARITAS model. Keratos, yeah, mm-hmm. the CARITAS mm-hmm. model.
2: Yes. And it's about caring. And our RN to BSN program actually has it threaded through everything, but because of the work they're doing it's been threaded through everything that the college does. So I tell you, most meetings start with deep breathing and centering moments. And you know what? It's paid off during COVID.
0: That, I think that would have helped me. I mean, (laughs) in my nursing years, Mm -hmm. I remember like nursing school is not easy. It is, it is very rigorous. Mm -hmm. It's very challenging. And there were a lot of moments where I actually had quite bad anxiety in nursing school. And I mean, as nurses going through the pandemic, we've heard lots of stories about their challenges and I think they can take a page from Samuel Merritt university. Like this is some really, you know, edge of like really great stuff. And I mean, I think to myself that, you know, as a new Dean coming in, this is some great work that you're doing. What are some of your goals and aspirations for nursing for 2022?
2: Well, I don't know if you've seen the new um, uh, uh, the new uh, Future of Nursing book, 2020 to 2030. Um, I have to say, when I read that book, I'm excited because it's talking about the same things that I'm talking about. One of the things that I started off with, and I've told the faculty that I just want to happen you realize and I realize that nursing has been taught the same way for probably 50 to 75 years. Yes. Uh (laughs) uh (laughs) right. And and healthcare is changing. Nursing is changing. We're discovering new techniques to do things. And we as an academic environment need to keep up with the future of nursing and not just continue to go with tradition. This is the Mm -hmm. way we've always done it. These are the courses we've always had. And you know what? You have to be at the bed bedside in order to become a good nurse and a nursing student without a bedside experience is not going to be a great nurse. Guess what? You can learn to do an assessment even better in the community because you're also looking at what's going on in their home. Can they afford the dietary changes that you're re- recommending? Can they afford the meds? When you see someone in the bed, all you see is the illness and the treatment and the, right. and the and the skill set that you have to do. You forget that there are whole person. Nursing talks about caring, whole person care all of the time. But at the bedside, we don't always get to see that well. And what COVID has done for us is it's helped us bring in the future of nursing. And many more of our students are in the community, working with the, the unhoused and working with families, right? Guess what? You may have a senior in the bed in the hospital, but you don't know that they're living with their grandchildren. And -hmm. how are the grandchildren helping to maintain their care? One of my favorite stories is from a student who said his job in community health was to go out and to assess patients in their homes for Meals on Wheels. And he Mm -hmm. got an address and he thought, This person probably would never qualify for Meals on Wheels. Look at their zip code. Look where they live. But but when he got to the home, the man was elderly. He had purchased his home probably 50 years before, so he didn't pay that new high price. Mm -hmm. He was living in his expensive home in this expensive neighborhood in poverty. He was a widower, had lost his wife and he may have been real estate wealthy but he was truly living in poverty and i asked the student what will this how, how can you use this and how will you take this with you moving forward and he said i will never again stand at the bedside of a patient and only look one dimensionally i am always going to think about does he have does he have stairs that he has to get up to can when he gets home can he get up those stairs can he Right? Can he afford his meds? He was thinking one-dimensional, and he would never start. He would never look at a patient in the hospital, in the bed, uh, that way again. He would always think about where do they live? Can they get upstairs? Can they afford their meds? You know, and it changed. He said it changed his mindset. It changed the way he thought about healthcare. It. it, it and those are the kinds of stories. That I just love because that's what we want students to learn, not just skills. We want them to have a changed mindset so that caring and support and all of those things we talk about in nursing become a part of them. Right. And so those are just some of the examples of of things that we're doing, moving our students into the future of nursing. And um, that's one of the things I was really excited about. And then some of the other things as dean are just about operationalizing things, um, developing relationships with more and more community partners, bringing them into the meetings that I have about curriculum so that they're a part of the decision making because they're seeing the the trends and the changes. And so I invite them to curriculum meetings. We are partnering with the VA with, all, with Kaiser, we're partnering with so many different community agencies, and ha- we have them at the table. And I mm-hmm. think historically, not having them at the table has harmed us. And I remember when I first started bringing our community partners to the table when I was dean at another school, and those community partners would say, why are you teaching IVs? Why are you teaching this? We teach that in the new nurse um, orientation. Why don't you focus on this and why don't you focus on that? And where the where the where the strain has been and where the difficulty has been, the faculty think, wait, they need to know these things. But our our partners are saying, no, you can focus on this, that, and the other, because what we care about is whether or not they're caring, they're they can be a part of a team, they know how to look for information. And they're open, right? And not Mm -hmm. so much skills, 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 skills. And so that's what we're... So all of the things we used to call soft skills are now vital skills, right? Ah, I like (laughs) that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what we're really pushing in the future of nursing. And we're looking at those advanced practice roles and all sorts of things to make sure that we're doing our part to add to a very diverse workforce. And I think diversity is not just always about race and ethnicity, but it's about diversity of thought and mm-hmm. being willing to be agile. And mm-hmm. that's what we want our nursing students to be able to do. And those are the ones that get the jobs first. I need to go back to school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dr. Kendrick, we're going to steal you here in Canada. You can't stay up there. We want you here. Oh my oh. God, you are a force to be reckoned with that. But you know what? That is... That is the goal. Mm-hmm. That is the vision yes. of the future of nursing. You have nailed that 110%. Yes. And oh my gosh, we need to, we need to open the floodgates to SMU <laughs> to have students going there. You yeah.
1: know what though? I have to tell you, Dr. Kendrick, we spoke to somebody else um, at a university near us and she had come from California and she spoke very highly of Samuel Merritt and she yes, was she uh, did. Yes. really impressed with the school and I've only heard good things. And I know that SMU also has a scholarship program. Tell us about that.
2: So we do, we, um, we provide scholarships to our students coming in. um, And it's, it's one of those things that we make sure that all, you know, you think about diversity, and you think about different levels of social economic status. And so we want to make sure that we open our doors to all levels of students and all students, regardless of their ability to pay, we want to be able to add to the workforce from all levels of of our society. And so that scholarship really helps a lot of students that otherwise would not choose to come to Samuel Merritt. And so I'm proud that we can, and it goes back to what I said earlier, Samuel Merritt is is dedicated to making sure everyone is successful. And so the scholarship is just another part of that, making sure that someone can come in and not worry and not stress about, will I be able to complete my program? How can I pay for this? So we make sure that we have scholarships and all sorts of resources to make sure they're successful. And that goes with that caring and that kindness and, you know, and giving back and recognizing again, those social determinants of health and how can we make sure that everyone in our community around us has the same opportunity to attend our school. We have secret sauce and we want everyone to be able to impart with and get a part of that.
0: Oh my God. Amazing. I- I think that you are, you're so dynamic and it is so much a part of the work that Sarah and I do talking about the social determinants of health, because I think people like COVID has really pulled back the veil on the inequities in terms of health that we see. And we know that there's challenges with nurses who, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they only can see a patient through the technicity that we've, we've developed. So yes, Mm -hmm. technology is a good thing, but also it can be it could be a downside if we are not using the whole Mm -hmm. framework of nursing assessments to engage and understand fundamentally what's happening with your patient. And I think that the work it sounds like SMU is doing is amazing and incredible. So really, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. But before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to add?
2: Um, you know, I would like to talk about um, some of the new programs we're planning and thinking about. Um, Absolutely. As, yes. As you know, we have a traditional BSN. We have early entry ELMS that is kind of more the graduate. So they come in as a BSN student, but they're already, their trajectory is to not stop until they get either the case management degree or the F&P degree. We have a accelerated, so ABSN program. And then we have our our nurse practitioner program, family nurse practitioner. We have our DNP program. We have a nurse anesthesia program. And of course we have our our uh, case management, but we're looking at nurse educator because we know just like with any other workforce, we're, we don't have enough nursing faculty. So we may have to you know, grow our own for a while. And so we're doing that. We're looking at, um, we're actually very close, probably fall 2022, we'll have our Psych NP program started. And then we're looking at Nurse Midwifery and Adult Gero. And I think I've named them all. That's (laughs) amazing. I think that's really great
1: that you kind of prepare people for the end degree after yes. the BSN because we I know a lot of nurses feel very lost after nursing yes. school. They don't know what else to do, and they end up working for a bit and then going back to school, where mm-hmm. it seems like you have it you have their path figured yeah. out for them ahead of time. Yes.
2: Personally, I believe you know the BSN is a wonderful entry level, and the wonderful thing about a BSN degree is you can do anything. I have friends who are nurse attorneys. I mean, you can just go and and nurses we know because we think evidence-based and and solution-based and we're strategists. We make some of the best CEOs of companies. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, and, and we think that way, we strategize, we think that way. So we, I start telling students, I, I recognize students in the undergraduate program and I said, you have to keep going to school because I need you to come back and be a faculty. Or I, posed <laughs> up students. I said, oh, you know what? You can't stop school because I need you to replace me when I retire as dean. So those kinds of things to motivate them. And sometimes students say, I'm tired, Dr. Kendrick. I don't want to go back to school right away. I said, that's okay. I give you 18 months. And then you start <laughs> itchy, right? We all do. You get itchy and you're like, okay, I haven't had to do an assignment. I don't know what to do with myself. Might as well go back to school.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh my goodness.
1: I love it. I I, I love the energy. I think that this is going to be very inspiring to our listeners. I'd like to end on a high note. So with that in mind, I wanted to thank you, Dr. Kendricks, for coming on the Gritty Nurse podcast, talking about Samuel Merritt University and all there is to offer and our conversations around race and inequity. So thank you, thank you very much. And uh, we appreciate
0: your time. Yeah, and thank you for sponsoring us as well. Yeah, thank you. Happy to do
2: that. And I appreciate this. And anytime you want me to come back or if you want some information and you need some some guidance, feel free to email me and I will send you my article. But thank you for allowing me to come on your wonderful platform and share some of the exciting things we're doing at SMU.
0: Thank you so much. All
2: right.